So my challenge today is just to talk about two of the fruit, which is gentleness and self-control. But let us remind one another as Christians of these words, those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's us who have been baptised into Christ. We have crucified the flesh, which is the outer of its passions and its desires. And of course, if we live by the Spirit, which we proclaim to do because when we were baptised, we were given the Holy Spirit, we need to stay in step with it. So the first one I want to talk about is gentleness. Now, most translations use this word gentleness and the King James Version translates meekness in this particular uh, verse. And the word Paul used here literally describes someone who is gentle, meek or mild. And if you look at the original Greek word, that's how they've transliterated. It's humble, humility, meekness. Um, That's what the message is giving to us from Galatians chapter 5. When I think of the term mild, it's interesting in use here because what do you think of when you think of something being mild? Well, we might think of something uh, not being sharp, spicy or bitter, which makes me think of Indian food. You see, mild Indian is a little blander and more moderate. Even the tongue acknowledges the taste of mild Indian food. The hot Indian food, on the other hand, stands out a little bit more. Your poor tongue has nowhere to hide. The hot spices are so abrasive on your tongue and you break out in an instant sweat. So a mild person is much less abrasive, severe and harsh. Rather, they are gentle, meek and humble. That's why I eat mild Indian food. The virtue called gentleness is by nature meek, mild and humble. The exact opposite of harsh, abrasive and arrogant. Perhaps the best translation of this word would have been a word like humility. Now, the terminology that is used by our translators is one of the reasons that I believe so many Christians do not esteem this particular virtue. For some of us, we don't seem to see the term gentleness and meekness as a strength. But what we need to understand is that meekness does not describe a weak person. And meekness is not weakness. Rather, meekness is a power, a power under perfect control. If I'm mild and meek, it doesn't mean I don't have something to say or offer an opinion. It just simply means that in my love for you, I'm willing to lay down my thoughts, opinion and viewpoint. Now, the polar opposite of a gentle, meek and humble person is a person who needs to be in control. They try to change people and circumstances around them. We we don't want to be this way, 
by cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, we can change ourselves to not be this way. And why? Because like all nine of the fruit of the Spirit, humility, gentleness and meekness is a characteristic of God himself. Jesus referred to himself this way in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. Jesus came to this earth and said, everyone's straight, just like that. But no, he didn't. No, he didn't. He took the humble road all throughout his ministry and did not seek his own. Everything he did was out of love for others. And this should be our motivation as well. We will not find a stronger person than a truly meek person. Why? It is because it's much more difficult to submit your will in humility than it is to exert your will in pride. The world does the latter. But the spirit will empower the believer to humble themselves and be willing to yield to others in love. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, we have a great example of how one who possesses the fruit, this fruit of the Spirit, will behave. The Apostle Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, the word for gentleness is the same word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23. And we've seen how it describes someone who might possess something. But they do not use their power to criticise, ridicule and assert their will on someone. What this describes is the demeanour and attitude that we have when we are helping someone who has missed it. We are not carrying ourselves haughtily or condemning them, but we are approaching them gently, humbly and with respect. Essentially, the way we would want someone to restore us if we had the same mistake you know, it all goes back to that golden rule, right? Treating one another as we would want to be treated. Which is why Paul said, what he said next in the verse was, keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Therefore, the point Paul was making in this verse is that the attitude of humility will help us to deal with one another in a godly way. And it begins by us truly examining ourselves instead of trying to examine everybody else. But again, this fruit of the Spirit is not going to fall on us like an apple out of a tree. We're going to have to water and nurture that seed in us so it is produced in our lives. In the verse from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, that's us, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. That's what we've got to put on. Right? It's not something that falls on the tree and you get it. You've got, to, you've got to put it on. It takes work. And we see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, we're told, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, gentleness. So this teaches us that this virtue is given by the Holy Spirit, along with the others as well, are to both be pursued in our lives and then put on intentionally. We're told time and time again that we are to humble ourselves. Let me give you a couple of verses in James chapter 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the end of the proper time he may exalt you. This is something that you and I are going to have to do ourselves. No, it's not our job to try and keep other people humble. We have a full-time job humbling ourselves. Why? Because pride and self-centeredness are ingrained in our flesh, the outer being. And it's going to take some serious seeking by ourselves on that subject. But that is why we have the Holy Spirit, for he's there to help us to both desire to see the self eradicated from our lives and to empower us to produce more humility. If we yield to him, he will help us do what we never could do in overcoming the flesh. Self-control. Let's move on to the last, but certainly not least, fruit of the Spirit in Paul's list. Fruit of self-control. The term self-control comes from the Greek word, which I'm not going to get right, uh, enkretia, which is a combination of two words. The word en, E-N, which means inner or inward, and the word kratos, which describes a ruling power. In fact, this is the word kratos, is where we get our English term democracy from. The word demos being the Greek word for people, and the word kratos meaning ruling power. So the word democracy literally means people ruling power. Essentially being a government that is ruled by the people. So when you combine these words together, you get what I consider to be the perfect definition for self-control. Self-control is not people ruling power, it's an inward ruling power. In other words, a person exhibiting the fruit of self-control is a person who is governing themselves. So self-control is the supernatural ability of the Holy Spirit to rule over our outward man by our inward man. In other words, it's mastering or controlling the flesh by the spirit man. But 
you'll hear this word regarding people shooting down the notion that the majority rules when it comes into certain decisions. This is not democracy. It's not with this particular fruit of the Spirit either. No. God the Father is not going to control you. Jesus is not going to make you produce his fruit either. And contrary to popular opinion, the Holy Spirit is not going to make you bear this fruit of self-control. No. The only one that will control you is you. Now, some Christians may tell you that there are things they simply cannot control in regards to how they act. They will say, for example, that they just can't help but blow up on rage or in rage. That's simply not true. Someone might say, yeah, well, I don't agree with that. I can't control this temper I got. Well, I would challenge you on that. I believe once properly motivated, anyone can control anything that they think, say or do. Yes, the vast majority of the people that say they can't control themselves can control themselves given the proper motivation. You'll have a husband or a wife who will just criticise or get angry with their spouse and tell them how they just feel because they say they can't help it. But that same person will go do their job and go to work and no matter how much their employer ticks them off or angers them, they're able to keep from venting all of their feelings to their boss. And why? Because they know their actions might cost them the job. We remember when Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that If your eye causes us to sin, pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why do you say that? Because it's better for one of your members to perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, most people don't think that Jesus was being literal here. Um, And in a sense, I think he was quite literal. Now, of course, he's not... Uh, encouraging self-mutilation. The Lord does not want us to start a ministry of eye-plucking and hand-chopping. But I believe he was very literal in that he was telling us that if any of our body parts are causing us to sin, then we need to eliminate or take control of that body part. The truth is, however, that none of our body parts, none of them, cause us to sin. Why? Because we, the real us on the inside, are in control of the outside. The thought, should I do this or should I do that, happens here. It's not the arm wandering off, taking stuff because it wants to take it. It's not the eyes looking at things they shouldn't be looking at. It's in here, the inside questioning, what am I doing? Telling me what to do and what not to do. It's like, white bird, should I? Shouldn't I? Should I? Shouldn't I? And we say, what does God think I should do? Seek his help. That's what self-control is about. 
Spiritually is having command, spirituality is having command over our feelings and emotions and learning to do things simply because it is what we're told to do or is it simply the right thing to do? This obviously takes supernatural strength or inner fortitude to control the emotions and feelings that like to control us. In Proverbs 16 and verse 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Like we said with meekness, people do not see self-restraint as a strength, but it truly is. A weak person lacks self-control saying whatever comes up, venting all their feelings and simply losing control. A strong person controls his or her words and actions, being even more mighty than someone who conquers an entire city. That shows us just how hard it is to control self and why we need the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in this fruit. Perhaps this is the reason the Apostle Paul listed self-control last. Because it's the pinnacle, it's the pinnacle of living a spirit-controlled life. We are walking in the fruit of the spirit the most when we feel like letting someone know what for and we don't because of our love for them. That's actually the fruit of self-control and operation. It's not an absence of feelings or void of negative emotions. No, it's the supernatural assistance of the Holy Spirit within us to not feed those emotions and to not act on those feelings. This is self-control the highest form of personal government one can possess. Interesting that the first fruit of the Spirit listed by Paul in Galatians chapter 5, 23-23 is love. And the last is self-control. It would seem that love and self-control are the bookends of being fruitful. If we love not necessarily a feeling, a bunch of loving emotions, but as an act of our will expressing love to people through our actions. And we exercise self-control over those feelings of the flesh, we are well on the way to walking in the spirit. So in conclusion, the fruits of humility and self-control require much self-denial and sacrifice. And that is simply hard on one's flesh. Therefore, while we might tend to focus more on the love, joy and peace side of the fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness, humility and self-control are the other side of the fruit of the Spirit that will make us fully fruitful. In other words, we can be as 
fruitful in love, joy and peace as we can possibly be. But if we do not produce any faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, then we will not be filled with the fruit of righteousness. In fact, if also Paul prayed a prayer for the church at Philippi, and is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness that Paul was talking about in these, I'd say, the nine spirits, the nine fruits of the Spirit, which are talking about here. For as we learned, they are indeed the fruits of the righteous nature we have inherited in Christ. And these verses state that they are both by Christ Jesus and to the glory and praise of God. Sounds like John chapter 15 to me, for our fruitfulness can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, abiding in him, apart from him, we can do nothing. And Jesus also said that the fruit glorifies God. You see, when one is born again, and baptised into Christ, they receive the recreated spirit. One that is the very image and likeness of God's righteousness. And as the Apostle John said, those who have truly been made righteous are meant to produce the righteousness in their lives. We recall from Matthew, he writes, By their fruit, you will know them. In this passage in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the false prophets and the false teachers. But knowing people by their fruit applies both to the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a challenge for you and I. Does the world... Know that you and I have the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives. Do they give glory to God for who we are? Because as Matthew said, that's what produces, what people see will recognise who we are. The conduct that will receive Christ's commendation, must be characterised by the fruit of righteousness. Transformed lives are the demonstration that God works in believers. Paul desires that when his readers stand before Christ, their lives will have been filled with the right kind of fruit. He's not talking about mere human uprightness measured by outward conformity to the law as he says in chapter 3 and verse 9. He's rather speaking of the spiritual fruit that comes through Jesus Christ, produced in them by the Holy Spirit, sent by Christ, as we're told in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. 
Consequently, all the glory and praise belongs not to us, but to God. For he has redeemed them by the work of his Son, and has implanted within them his Spirit, to produce the fruit of righteousness. The thought is similar to that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 6, 12 and 14, where Paul says that the entire plan of redemption, the entire plan of redemption ought to result in the world praising God's glory. I talked earlier about motivation. You know, I don't think we need a greater motivation than to know, as we proclaimed in the Lord's Supper, loud and clear, we believe God is, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, what's he going to do? Well, one of two things is going to happen to each of us. Either we're going to have a, an internal life with him in heaven forever, or we're going to have a life of eternal damnation in the fires of hell. And where that goes is where you and I sit back, look at our lives, think about the fruit we're producing, think about how we're living and how is Jesus going to judge us on each of those fruit of the Spirit. That choice of the outcome of one of those two things rests totally in your hands and that's what we need to remind each other of.